Welcome to the Creative Pen Podcast. I'm Joanna Penn, thriller author and creative entrepreneur, bringing you interviews, inspiration and information on writing, publishing options and marketing ideas for your book. You can find the episode show notes, your free author blueprint and lots more information at thecreativepen.com and that's pen with a double N. And here's the show. Hello creatives, I'm Joanna Penn and this is episode number 580 of the podcast and it is Friday the 22nd of October 2021 as I record this. In today's show, I'm talking to Corrie Shrum about writing and podcasting her true crime memoir, Who Killed My Mother? So I was a little nervous about talking to Corrie about what was and still is a very difficult time in her life. I thought it might be a bit intense and raw and all of that, but Corrie is super professional and she has some great insights about working through trauma in writing, separating the emotional side of things from the publishing and business side, and how important it was to share this story in her own voice through a podcast as well as the book. So it's a really interesting interview and I guess a bit like me on the dark side of things, Corrie has her darkness but her public persona is very upbeat. So uh we actually have, I guess, quite a jolly discussion about what is a very difficult topic. So that is coming up in the interview segment. In publishing and book marketing news. So Frankfurt Book Fair is on right now in Germany as I record this. And although physical attendance is unsurprisingly down, they seem to be pretty positive about recovery from the pandemic, which in fact has been a transformative time for traditional publishing in many ways. And uh, the industry's done really well. So it has actually taken the pandemic to push traditional publishing over the edge into fully embracing digital publishing and book marketing. And Penguin Random House's worldwide CEO, Marcus Dole, did one of the opening keynotes at Frankfurt. He listed six ways that this is the best time in publishing. So I thought I'd share them with you. First of all, he says the revenue pool of our industry is growing globally every year. Consumers are putting more money on books, on stories in long form than in the year before. And this is all reported in publishingperspectives.com, which is uh, a great blog for kind of keeping up on the international side of publishing, mainly focused on traditional publishing. So uh, it's one of the blogs I read, that's Publishing Perspectives. Uh, Second thing, he says, it's a very stable, robust and developed business model for the physical distribution of content, but also the digital distribution of our stores. And I said this, this robust business model of digital has um, the, the traditional publishing industry has embraced during the pandemic has really bolstered their um, income. He also says there's a healthy coexistence between print and digital distribution. So rather than one or the other, it's a coexistence now. Also, he says, and this I've been talking about for years too, the reachable audience is growing. The world population is growing and literacy rates are going through the roof, bringing more people into the reading ecosystem and e-commerce. And uh, I've been talking about this, about the global, scalable, mobile, uh, online business model. And the fact that uh, I can't remember my latest number of countries I've sold books in, but it's like something like 164 countries that I've sold books in. And those are not necessarily physical books. Those are very often digital sales on digital devices. So yeah, this is only going to continue. 
And he also says books for children and young adults have been the fastest growing category of the last 25 years, bringing ever larger generations into the ecosystem. So great news, no sign of younger people giving up reading. And finally, audiobooks are moving. Audio consumers are passionate and audiobooks are not just, he says, not just cannibalising other formats. And I, I think this is true. As an audio listener, some of the books I get in audio, I also get in other formats. So yeah, he says, you can do other things while listening to an audio book. So I pretty much agree with all of that. And Although <laughs> the issue for indies, of course, is that traditional publishing is now muscling into our paid ad ecosystem, which is why the prices have gone up so much. It's become a lot more expensive, a lot harder to get promotions in areas that we used to dominate. We don't anymore because it's like traditional publishing just discovered digital marketing. <laughs> so, yes, but that's OK. The other thing is that uh, agent Kristen Nelson, who I've mentioned before, is one of the agents I I particularly admire. I think she does a great job and she works with a lot of hybrid authors. She put out a blog post last week that questions this optimism <laughs> from the perspective of the author. So it wasn't questioning the Frankfurt talk because uh, it, it, this came out before then. But it, it is about how, well, I'll just read it. So she says, with headlines such as HarperCollins sales near $2 billion and publishing sales jumped 18% and first half profits soared at Penguin Random House, it's clear that at least in terms of earnings, COVID is not having a negative impact on publishing. Uh, Kristen says, I should be thrilled. My industry is sound. This is good for authors. Time to celebrate, right? Yet I'm grumpy. Here's why. And she basically goes on to say that she wishes that the industry would share the financial rosy picture with the content creators who make it possible. But the opposite is happening. Royalty share to authors has contracted in the last five to seven years. So as in it's getting smaller. She lists a lot of the different ways that things have got worse for creators. And this is within traditional publishing. And I'll link to the blog post in the show notes. Um, it's at nelsonagency.com. So she says, in the mid 2000s, Random House used to pay an ebook royalty of 25% of retail price until advance earnout, And then it switched to 25% of net receipts. And so this is really important because, of course, net is after all the expenses have been taken out, which if you look at things like paid advertising, you might not be left with much. So um, she also talks about the death of the mass market format and the insistence of audio rights as part of the package. So there are lots of other interesting points in the article and she finishes up by saying a book doesn't exist without the content creator, the author. I'd love to see a headline that proclaims a publisher is offering authors a bigger slice of the earnings pie. Now that would make me smile. So yeah, check that out. Nelsonagency.com. So yes, of course, that is traditional publishing. But many of you listening are hybrid. And once again, I will bang on about contracts, making sure you understand what you're signing. And yes, I will and have signed contracts with traditional publishers, mainly for foreign rights. And I'm interested in doing that maybe for other projects, but it will entirely depend on the contract. But it's not just traditional publishing. Many indie authors have also seen revenues eaten away uh, by spending a percentage on advertising. So if you th if you go from the uh, you know the retail price, it used to be oh yeah yeah we get seventy percent of retail price, but we don't get seventy percent anymore because every author who's making any money is spending some on 
some kind of advertising or marketing or something. And the overheads have increased around email list management and various tools that make our lives easier, but still cost. So I think we can't be complacent around saying, oh yeah, but we're all right. I really think that if uh, indie authors looked at the, um, the profit on their books now, as opposed to a decade ago, which is what um, Kristen is also comparing it to, what you'll find is more money going back. So uh, if you think that Amazon, uh, the way Amazon's income has gone up during the pandemic, are authors getting more of that share? Uh, No, we're probably putting more into AMS ads, for example. So yeah, you have to evaluate the income and the costs. And obviously, that's what publishing is doing. So yeah, there are always pros and cons creative. I've also been thinking a lot and I've talked about it on the beginning of this show for a while, this sort of erosion of digital value. And with the growth of subscription models in particular, I have been worried about indie author digital incomes heading south and the business model shifting too much for too many people. And as ever, I tell people to sell direct because when you sell direct, you do retain more of the revenue. Plus you've already, you don't have to keep marketing because those are already in your ecosystem and also build multiple streams of income. Obviously I've been saying that for a long time, but I'm also reinvigorated around digital because of the possibilities of Web3 and an ecosystem on blockchain, uh, whichever blockchain we we might be using, I think there are going to be many opportunities coming up in the next year. Many people are calling this the ownership economy, and it's a big part of the creator economy. So in this, uh, I just hope it remains this way. I mean, inevitably, it will probably what will probably happen is if so 2000, um, let's say 2008 to 2020 five is that incumbent model which is now starting to shift what we're going to see is sort of the 15 year change of which we're in the early days so it's like 2008 all over again with the blockchain opportunities it will if we're nimble enough we can catch the early wave and then inevitably platforms will arrive and things will change and then uh, traditional publishing might get on board in about a decade (laughs) but that gives us time to reorientate to a new business model and it's funny because I remember moving to the UK, back to the UK in 2011, uh, after I first self-published in 2008. So I was sort of in this digital space. And I w- was going along to traditional publishing events this is a decade ago. And there was even one future book where Hugh Howie and Bella Andre and me sat at a table and we were meant to be answering questions from traditional publishers about our digital models. And no one came over. <laughs> So I just sat there having a good chat with Hugh and Bella. And I I think it might have been 2014. It might even have been before that. But um, they they weren't even interested in what the digital model was back then. And now things have very much changed. So what I, I am filled with optimism as ever for the next decade. And I feel like we're kind of jumping the curve into the new business model and we can be nimble enough to take advantage. So more on that to come. 
So in my personal update, Tomb of Relics is now in print formatting. Uh, It's officially launching on the 1st of December, but of course we need to get the print books done early this year in particular. I mean, we normally do, but uh, there's obviously the supply chain issues that we've all seen. Uh, Also, I've seen that Apple are asking for a couple of weeks for digital as over the holiday period as well. So if you're loading files for pre-orders, then make sure you're doing it well in advance. Don't leave it to the last minute. Probably anything between now and I don't know, January sometime, leave extra time for pre-orders to kind of filter through the system. I've also sent the manuscript off for audio narration. So it's all coming together, finishing energy. Uh, I also have to decide on what I'm doing with my NFT. More on that uh, in the next show, which I'll talk about in a bit. So I've also been proofing the AI narrated audio for uh, co-writing a book by Deep Zen, which is has been really interesting. I'll let you know more when it's done. I'm going to do a separate uh, episode on that. The non-fiction turnaround was just incredibly fast and also it was very easy. It's so funny because of course I write a lot of this stuff down before I uh, record it and a lot of it I read, you can tell, and then sometimes I go, uh, I just talk about other things and that's when you know I'm making more of a mistake like I'm doing right now. Uh, And what's so interesting with AI narration is it never reads it wrong. What it reads, it's when you realise that your writing for audio is so important and you have to write in a different way for audio. And I think you also have to write in an even more extended way if you want to use auto narration. So, yeah. Um, And the other things, I've really changed my mind on this. I've changed my mind on so many things. I've, I've moved forward in this AI space. I did originally want to kind of clone my voice, have this voice double and license my voice. Now I've pretty much decided that I want to use different voices. And so you will know that if it's my voice, it's either me doing it or it's a deep fake. And I say that now, and I might change my mind again. But at the moment, I feel like my human voice is the real human me. And I also want the AI narration to retain some of the occasional intonation flaws. So we don't want it to be perfect. We we need to be moving into the space where we know what is AI and what is human. And that's why I I like um, the... I like the Deep Zen approach. They're crediting the original humans. They've got an ethical statement. I'll talk about this when I do the separate show. But also for nonfiction, for example, I'm, I now listen at 1.8x speed and I'm, I'm trying to move up to a 2x speed for most of my audio. And a lot of the intonation flaws don't make any difference to my, I say flaws. Uh, again, they're not flaws. The AI narration intonation I don't know by design we should almost call it that we don't want it to be perfect uh, so yeah I've really changed my mind on that the fiction so the the non-fiction was just bang 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 it was done I listened to it I had like one slight issue and it was my fault <laughs> but the uh, fiction is just too difficult at the moment we are going back through it and I don't know whether we'll get to a point when I'm happy. But uh, as expected, fiction was always going to be more of a challenge. And I have been talking about AI narration or auto narration for many years now. I I found a mention, uh, evidence of mention in 2018, but I pretty much think I've been talking about this since before that. But it does feel like 2022, uh, we will see a lot more of these things coming into the mainstream, at least with mass market non-fiction. Uh, with a lot more offerings coming to the market, a lot more uh, different accents, 
uh, for example, you know, a British Indian accent is different to a um, Scouse accent is different to my accent, even just in British English. So, of course, there are lots and lots of different accents within languages. Interesting times. I also got my hardback. Uh, yay! It arrived from KDP Print for How to Make a Living with Your Writing, the third edition, and I really like it. You can't actually get author copies in the UK ordered from the UK store. They're printed in Poland. So if you are a UK author, you can order through the European stores like um, the German store. But I just decided to publish it and then order it anyway as a customer would. And I really like it. So I am going to go back through my backlist. I've been doing hardbacks on Ingram Spark at a five by eight uh, format, but it looks like I'm going to have, I have to go to a five, 5.5 by 8.5 or something. So unfortunately we have to redo (laughs) the files, but I feel like it's worth it. I won't do it for everything, but I am definitely going to do some more of the backlist in the hardback edition. So that's, uh, I like having KDP print version and the Ingram Spark version because I think Amazon obviously prefers their own edition and the Ingram Spark version is the wide available to libraries and um, bookstores and universities, etc. Also this week, I did some podcast reporting, some stats for one of the wonderful sponsors. And I thought you might be interested. I was interested. I bet I, I don't do these type of things very often. The Creative Pen has now had over 6 million downloads across 226 countries. 62% are in the USA, 12% UK, 6% Australia, 6% Canada, and then rest of the world, uh, 14%-ish. Those are all kind of rounded numbers, but yeah. So two thirds, USA. (laughs) Thank you, Americans. (laughs) Uh, And that's just on the audio feed. So six million for the audio feed and for YouTube, where my content is mainly the podcast. uh, It's another 3.1 million views across, and that's not um, impressions, that's actually views across a similar demographic, although India is in the top four uh, instead of Australia. So coming up on a total of 10 million downloads, which is pretty exciting. And I wanted to, I was like, oh, I wonder what the most popular episodes are. So I looked on the audio feed and she might even be listening. The most popular episode is Meg Cowley with over 23,000 downloads on how to publish an adult colouring book. (laughs) (laughs) which was very on trend at the time. But uh, yeah, so Meg Cowley, congratulations, number one on the audio feed. And on YouTube, it's James Scott Bell with over 65,000 downloads on improving your dialogue. (laughs) So that's crazy. So thanks to everyone for continuing to listen to the show, for spreading the word, telling your friends. I always appreciate the word of mouth marketing. And of course, thanks to patrons for supporting the show and sponsors who keep the show going. So thanks for your emails and tweets and comments this week. L.E. Meerman says, uh, as a research librarian, I found this interview particularly thrilling. And uh, Hallie's Ledger and Lace said, I really appreciated the interview with Vicky. I'm doing my first foray into historical fiction. It was so good to hear her take on doing research. And um, finally, thanks to Sky McKinnon, who sent some gorgeous pictures on Twitter of an autumnal Scottish beach. And she said, listening to the podcast about the new relaxed author book with Mark Leslie while taking a relaxing walk uh, after spending a week inside doing nothing but work, 
it's necessary. Thanks for the reminder to take time off. So you can tweet me at the creative pen with a double N or um, you can email me joanna at thecreativepen.com. Leave a comment on the blog or the YouTube channel. Uh, I love to hear from you. It makes this more of a conversation. Right, so today's show is sponsored by Draft to Digital, and I will play a word from Kevin Tumlinson in a minute. I use Draft to Digital for ebook distribution to sites like Nook and library platforms, and I've recently used the payment splitting functionality for the Relaxed Author with Mark Leslie Lefebvre, and that includes the Amazon distribution. So uh, I don't even have to uh, pay Mark for that. Draft to Digital handle that split. They also have a podcast with lots of tips at Self Publishing Insiders and a great blog at drafttodigital.com and many, many years of working in self-publishing now. And so Kevin will come up in a minute and say a bit more. <laughs> this type of corporate sponsorship pays for the hosting, transcription and editing, but my time is sponsored by my wonderful patrons. And the uh, the limited extra episodes, I say limited, <laughs> it was meant to be a limited series this year, but you're going to have a flurry of them in the next couple of weeks because I've got the, you know, the AI narration stuff, the um, NFT stuff coming up, and I've got a couple of things on that. I've got sort of bigger AI questions coming up. So before the end of the year, uh, patron supported extra in between episodes are are ramping up. (laughs) So thanks to all the patrons and new patron this week, Teresa Finn. I also sent out the Q&A, which you get if you are a patron. So for a couple of dollars or euros or pounds or whatever you want to spend per month, you'll get the extra Q&A audio. You can support the show at patreon.com, p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com forward slash the creative pen. Um, and if you don't want to sign up monthly, you can always buymeacoffee.com forward slash the creative pen. Right, here's a word from Draft to Digital, and then we'll get into the interview. Hey, this is Kevin Thompson with Draft to Digital, and we love libraries. Everyone at Draft to Digital first discovered a love for reading at their local library, and chances are you did too. That's why we've put a big focus on building up library distribution for DDD authors. With a catalog of library distributors that reaches thousands of public, academic, and business libraries all over the planet. Overdrive, Biblioteca, Baker & Taylor, Hoopla, we just keep adding new ways for you to reach library patrons everywhere. And we're including new ways to make some money with innovations such as cost per checkout, a royalty structure that lets libraries check out as many copies of your books as they need, helping you reach eager patrons and get paid as you go. Find out more about how Draft2Digital works with libraries and you at drafttodigital.com slash library dash pricing. Corey Schramm is a USA Today bestselling author of science fiction, fantasy, and thrillers. She's also a true crime podcaster, and her latest book is a memoir, Who Killed My Mother? Welcome, Corey. Thank you. I'm so glad to be here. I have been a fan of yours for years. I've been stalking you on the internet for years. And then I tried to steal your assistant, Alexander. (laughs) So it might be getting a little creepy at this point. (laughs) Well, no, I really appreciate your support. And and also what we were saying before we started recording that because of our connection, I've discovered your novels and our readers, but like we share some readers in the fiction space. And I, I think a lot of this stuff is about connecting with people and people who are like us in some way. 
day and we've never met in person maybe we never will but it's so great to connect across the world isn't it so let's start tell us a bit more about you and how you got into writing sure So I had loved books and writing and everything about the world of literature all of my life, but I didn't really get serious about it until college. And I changed majors so many times because I had so many interests. I Like you, I'm a multi-passionate creative, and there's just so many things that I love about the world, and I love learning. And I think it was like the fifth time that I went to my advisor's office and was like, I'm thinking about changing my major. And she was like, Corey, 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 listen, I just want you to go down to this office and take this test and it will tell you what major you should be. And so I was like, okay. Yeah. So it's like you take a test and it matches your interest to like a field, you know? And so I went down there and I took the test and I matched an English major with like 94% or something ridiculous. Like it was like really clear that I should be studying literature, like books and things. And I was like, okay. And I already had a creative writing minor at that point that I had basically completed, but I didn't think of the English major because I was like, well, what, what can you do with them? (laughs) Are there jobs? Are there English major jobs? But it turns out there are. And so I completed that. And then I went on to get an MA and then I had to make the decision if I wanted a PhD in creative writing or an MFA in creative writing. You don't really need to do this in the real world, but it's like what people will tell you, oh, if you want to be a writer, get an MFA. And so I did that. I chose the MFA because the PhD seemed more like literary theory, whereas I just wanted to learn how to write really Mm. well. And MFAs are, they are studio degrees. So like they want you to be writing. So I was like, oh, okay, that sounds great. But the issue is, is that I like a lot of genre fiction and genre tropes, and it's not as accepted in academia as literary fiction. You know, they have like the high minded, like you could see it in capital letters, literary fiction, you know? Mm. And so I was like, well, what, what am I going to study? Cause I can't really do vampire novels. Like I've had a teacher in class. I will accept no vampire novels this semester. <laughs> it's like, oh God. Yeah. And so I chose poetry instead because I thought, well, if I could master poetry, that's a mastery of description and language and flow. And I think that that would really help my uh, fiction writing as well. And so I don't think it would be a waste of my time, right, to learn how to write poetry. So I chose to study poetry for my MFA, and it was great. I had amazing teachers. It was a wonderful experience. It was the first time in my life where I was around a lot of creative writing people who were really affirming to what I wanted to do. I was still writing my genre fiction in class, so I was clearly still doing both at the same time. But anyway, so I graduated. I started teaching. That's what you do if you have an MFA. The the primary job you would get is teaching. And I started pitching agents. And I got a good agent, a really reputable agent. She was with me for four years. And I gave her three manuscripts in that time. Um, But she couldn't sell them because even though we would get really nice feedback from all the big publishers, like we really like Corey's writing, this is good stuff. We just don't know where to place it because my fiction is very cross genre, right? Dying for Mm. a Living, for example, was the book she was shopping around. And I still don't know exactly where you would put that on the shelf. Is it a mystery? Is it a zombie novel? Is But it's not a zombie novel because they're not the zombies we think of. You know, it's really unclear. And from a publisher perspective, they want to know exactly where to put it on the shelf. So she mm. couldn't sell those. And um, after about four years, this is when Argo Navis, this self-publishing platform that for a hot minute, I don't know if they're still doing it. 
they were using it to self-publish books they couldn't sell. So my literary agency was like, well, let's do your books through Argo Navis. But it was essentially a self-publishing platform, but the agent got 15%. And I was like, why would I do that? Like, why would I want to do <laughs> yeah. that? Be- well, also because the- at the time, I didn't know nearly as much as I know now about self-publishing. Now, of course, it seems like an easy question. Like, of course you wouldn't do that. But then I, the only deciding factor was that I had worked for several years when I was at my MFA program in a small press. Uh, New Issues Press is attached to the school I went to, and I was a layout editor for them. And I also took a publishing class. So I was because I worked at the press, I was very familiar with the whole book publishing process, you know, how you get the manuscript, how you edit the manuscript, how you turn it into a book, how you get it out there into the world. So I was like, I already know how to do that. Why would I pay her 15% to do, if I'm going to have to do it myself anyway? So it just, it didn't make any sense to me. So I broke up with my agent then and just focused on writing as many books as I could. I finished out the Dying for a Living series while I was teaching as an adjunct uh, professor. And then I had about 10 books out when I left to write full time. And so that was 2018. So after that, I've been putting out about four books a year about three novels and a book of poetry since. And I still also read poetry submissions for the Los Angeles Review, but that's my writing life. That's what it looks like now. That's interesting. I just looked up Argo Navis because I hadn't heard of it. And it, so 2012, 2013, that was when they were doing um, that. And at similar time, I think it was Amazon White Glove was a similar thing where agents could basically self-publish on behalf of authors and take a percentage so there are so many of these things that come and go um so let's get into your latest book which is a true crime memoir and this is very personal it is called who killed my mother and it it is that which is difficult i guess why write this incredibly personal book when it must have been very difficult to write why do that Well, I mean, you say, why do it? Like it was a conscious choice. But to be honest, I was so consumed by the idea of doing it when when it happened. So the premise is that on July 4th, 2020, I received two phone calls. The first was from my uncle, who said that he had gone into my mother's bedroom and found her dead. And he thought he had she had died of an overdose, which was surprising because she had had drug abuse issues in the past, but she had been clean for a long time. Mostly she couldn't do anything because her health had become so poor. Not that that necessarily stops some people, but in her case, she was just too ill to do anything. So I was surprised, but I wasn't like horrified or or I wasn't suspecting anything at the time. But later that day, I got a second phone call from a homicide detective saying that he thinks it was foul play that something bad had happened and that he suspected my uncle and that they were arresting him and taking him in. So now I was very confused and I was upset and I was like, what really happened to her and like what what went down in that house? And so I remember waking up that night, I couldn't go to sleep. It was like, you know, three in the morning, I get up, I go down to my office and I'm kind of just peening around in my home office and I I'm rereading the stories I wrote about her in college, about these other near-death kind of experiences where she had almost died because of his violence toward her and stuff. And I was just so captivated by this idea that I have to sort through this. Like, I have to understand 
what has happened. And the only compulsion I had was like, well, I'm going to have to write it down. Like, I'm going to have to write down everything that happens going forward. But I'm also going to have to write down what happened in the past to make sense of this life that I had with her. Because it was also that I couldn't really understand why her life had ended like this. And so I was like, I, I have to look back and understand her life in its entirety. So it's not like I was like, oh, I think I'll just do that. It was more like I was completely possessed and compelled to organize her life because there was so much confusion around how she died that I thought the only way to gain clarity would be to write my way through it. And so that's basically what I did was I used it as a tool to make sense of what had happened. Yes. And I think dealing with these terrible life situations, writing is obviously a way we can help ourselves, but you chose to go further and publish it. And we'll talk about (laughs) podcasting it as well. So where, but where is the line? Because I feel, and I've read the book, it's a great book as a mystery, but where's the line between writing? As you said, you were compelled to write this, writing as therapy and writing for publication? Well, fortunately, at this point, I've put out like 22 books or something like that. So there is some uh, division in my brain, I can switch back and forth to being Corey, the publisher, Corey, the editor, Corey, the person with a lot of feelings. (laughs) Like I can be each Corey when it's time to be each Corey. And I think that's just come with, you know, I don't even know how long I've been writing now, 18 years of experience of doing it. So it might be make it easier. But In essence, it's just that I wanted to be honest to the experience, right? So you said you've read the book, so you probably are well aware of the fact that there's a lot of emotion in it, but not in like an overwrought, I don't think, dramatic way. Like, oh gosh, the things that have, you know, like, I don't feel like it was overdone, but I do keep you very close to what I was feeling at the time that things happened, would you agree with that or do or would you you want to say no <laughs> yeah yes I think you did but in terms of for people listening for people who want to also write a memoir that you have to know where the line is between this oh, yes, is gonna, my therapy yes. and this is yes. for publication right so what I mean by that is I I want you to step into your feelings as a writer like you you want to I guess I'm thinking of the phrase, feel your feelings, right? You always hear, feel your feelings. I used to get so mad when people be like, well, you just need to feel your feelings, Corey. I'd be like, what does that mean? Of course, I'm feeling my feelings. My feelings are so present. How can I not feel them? But I think what they're they're talking about is getting really into the experience of an emotion as a way to process it. And so that connects to what you're saying about feelings as therapy, because that that's what you do in therapy, right? You step into your feelings, you feel your feelings, you process it. And if it comes out raw, like in a messy way, if it's not worthy of publication at that time, that's okay. Um, that's what editing is for. Right? Like I have a wonderful editor in, in the UK. His name is Toby. And he would be able to clean that up. But fortunately, I'd already done so much rewriting at the point that he saw it. It wasn't an issue. But It's not unnatural to, when you're experiencing what you're going through, to just put it on the page however it comes out, because you want to be authentic with what you're feeling. Like the connection between people is what I think makes memoir special, right? We read memoir because we want to experience other people's lives or experience other things that people have gone through. And when we do that, we're connecting with their 
experience, their emotional experience. So if you're like distanced from doing that, I think the experience won't be as rich for your reader. So absolutely step into it. You can always go back and do the editing and the publishing part later with a more critical eye. And it's the same as fiction, at least it was for me in the sense that it's just if this doesn't work or this detail doesn't work. So for example, I kept really good records as the investigation unfolded about, you know, who said what at what time. But sometimes like I wrote a piece of dialogue that was literally from a text message or something on the page. And it just looked ridiculous because like when you text, you know, you shorthand or you talk in a very contextual way and it it doesn't work. And so you can rework that for flow or you can drop that piece of dialogue altogether if it's not doing anything for your story. Like the mechanics can always be sorted out later, but I absolutely think you can stay close to your feelings and, and it can be therapy, but it's also, at least for me, and maybe it's just because I'm a thinky person, I'm an INTJ, so I, I'd lead with thoughts. But for me, it's more like sorting details and alleviating confusion than sort of drowning in emotion. I agree with you on emotion being a really important part of memoir. That, that is what is the, the difference between memoir and autobiography as well as the sort of the first person, but also the emotional connection. But I wondered also, I mean, you write about death a lot. You've got this Dying for a Living series and, and your books have death in. So how else did your fiction writing help the memoir in terms of, I guess, both the cliffhangers and, and the mystery side? Yes. So because I wrote the the memoir actually first as a podcast, the chapter endings were a bit cliffhanging because I wanted you to then want to listen to the next episode. And fortunately, it worked out that way just because the investigation was somewhat slow in the sense. So I was always kind of on the verge of a cliffhanger. <laughs> like I also didn't know what was going to happen. So I just utilized that to my advantage. I don't know that I did anything particularly insightful from a technical perspective. I think I just took advantage of the fact that I was just living in flux for about a year and I was trying to make the best of it. But it is it is that way. It is structured that way because it was first produced as a podcast. And I think podcast episodes, I mean, I guess that doesn't make sense because in books, you would also want to have them captivated to read the next chapter. But it feels especially true for audio for some reason, in my opinion. So... Yeah. And and then I guess what, what other tips would you give for people in terms of writing? I mean, you mentioned there the text message into dialogue. What are the other things that you've brought from your fiction writing experience? Because you've never written a memoir, right? This is your first memoir, no. but you've written a lot of other books. Yes. I mean, I had experimented with memoir when I was getting my MFA because they do want you to play with other genres. And literary fiction, I just found difficult for some reason, even though it's not really that much different than the fiction I write, but because I couldn't whip out a superpower with someone for someone, for some reason it caused a blockage. Mm -hmm. So I played with memoir instead. Um, And so I did, I had written some memoir type stories, but you're right. I had never tackled a memoir for publication before. And as far as tips about how to do it, I would say absolutely be very honest, but that you are also allowed to lie. And what I mean by that is you're allowed to lie in the sense of what I was just saying about the dialogue. Like if if it doesn't work, 
exactly as it's said, you can keep the meaning of the conversation or you can keep the meaning or the significance of what happened, but reword it in a way that is better for the flow of your story, for the cohesion of your story, for, um, you know, the integrity of your story. And also I had a few little lies in there about people's names. So for example, there are some people who are still living that I didn't want to drag them into such a brazen display of family trauma if they didn't want to be known for that, you know, so I use different names for them. So be very honest in how you felt, what the experience was, but on a technical scale, you are allowed to, I think, change some details, either to improve the story or to protect other people. I think that that's perfectly allowed. I don't think that there's anything uh, disingenuous about that. I would also Mm. recommend that you, um, and this might go back to your question about how do you write about it without just like turning it into therapy on the page, is that when you connect with your feelings, do it from a place of curiosity and acceptance if you can. So for example, I love the uh, Buddhist nun Pema Chodron. I read a lot of her books. I listen to a lot of her audio tapes. She's helped me a lot with contextualizing my own life. And she talks a lot about this idea of working with difficult emotions from a place of curiosity. So there was a exercise that her teacher gave her that was like, okay, so you're feeling sad, right? Like, or you're the, the emotion you're connecting with right now is sadness. Well, what does sadness feel like in the body? What color would sadness be if sadness was a color? If it was an art style, what art style would sadness be? If it was an actress, what actress would <laughs> would sadness be? So you start to think about your emotions in a way that it puts you in this position of being curious about them. And so you think about it. You don't just get pounded by the waves of sadness. Like you're looking at it from this other position. And you're also at the same time, though, maintaining that intimacy with the emotion. You're not stepping away from it. It's not like you're trying to escape your sadness. You're actually really looking at it. It's like, well, what if it was an art style, what what art style would it be? If it was a shape, what shape would it be? Like you, you get really up close and personal. And then also acceptance, because I think when we have a hard time with emotion, it's because we're struggling against whatever we're experiencing. So it's never really that sadness itself, for example, or grief is the problem. The fact that you're grieving is not a problem. It's the fact that you tell yourself things like, oh, I shouldn't be feeling this way, or oh, I shouldn't be grieving, or God, I have so much to do, I don't have time for this, or so-and-so lost their person, and they didn't completely fall apart, and I must be doing it wrong, or I must be weaker. It's all the things that we add to our perception of our experience, and in a way reject it, that I think makes it so much harder for ourselves. So if you can come at your emotions and your experiences from this place of curiosity and acceptance, I think it would be a lot easier for you personally, just just living, but also in in crafting your story and and bringing to the page what you need to tell the story that you need to tell. And then my last tip would just be be incredibly gentle with yourself. (laughs) And that's with the acceptance. You know, this is not something you need to bulldoze through necessarily. A lot of indie writers, we're on schedules. Like we had to put out 10 books a year. And if I don't put out 10 books a year, I won't be as successful as X, Y, or Z. But a memoir or a story like this, this is probably not the time to give yourself a really intense deadline. <laughs> if it takes you longer to write your memoir, that's okay. It requires a level of 
I think, emotional and mental commitment that necessarily not all stories do. So don't just ram yourself through this gauntlet of, of, of a deadline. And I don't think it will make your story any better, nor will it necessarily help you in any way. So mm. take your time and be gentle. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, you don't, you, you often hear fiction writers, it's like, oh, I'm going to write that fight scene. It'll be so much fun. I'm going to blow this up and kill that character. And I, I haven't heard any memoir writers talk about memoir writing as fun. I think it's very satisfying and you feel very proud of your work, but I no one would describe it as fun. And obviously your situation was, that is not a fun oh, memoir. Oh yeah, I had a great time. No, <laughs> no, no, I would agree with your assessment that it was very much, um, I was satisfied with the job that I had done. I do feel that I told the story the best that I could and that I was very honest, which was what was important to me because that was a personal achievement for me just because the the tendency, I think, for people who come out of traumatic backgrounds and who kind of shore themselves up, make themselves tough, is that they're not necessarily good at showing their soft bits, their vulnerabilities. Like in my fiction, I reread a lot of my fiction lately, and like my different experiences, my difficult childhood, it's all there. Like I can see it now. I thought that I was being really secretive, like I, I, nothing was getting on the page, but it's all on the page, like in any of the books I write. But when I was, it was easy to tell stories about someone else, like it was someone else's trauma, someone else's difficult experience, not mine, right? And so being open and vulnerable is really hard. Um, especially if you come from a place where that could really be exploited or dangerous in certain company, right? It's hard to show those parts of yourself. So you kind of have to really have a level of self-confidence that I'm going to sh- put this out there. And even if someone says something horrible to me about it, I still needed to tell the story and the story was still important. And I was proud of myself that I was able to get past sort of these hangups that I had about like, well, I don't want them to know it was so hard. Like, I want them to think I'm a badass who has no problems in life. <laughs> you know, like There was a level of uh, reasoning with myself there that, that took some it was, it's mental work. You know, it's like, you have to really sit down and negotiate with yourself. Oh, definitely. I I do want to circle back. You used the word lie earlier, which I think the word lie is, and the, the examples you gave, I don't think were lies. They were changing people's names. They were keeping the meaning of a text message into dialogue. But I think this is really interesting with memoir because, and I'm not saying that you were lying, but you do write about your mother's history and your mother is obviously not around to fact check the past. And therefore, how do we research the background of someone we're so personally connected with? Like, how were you sure of the things you wrote about your mother's life when you couldn't mine her brain for the information, I guess? How do you make sure that is true and the meaning is, is there? Right. It's a good question. Well, in truth, even if my mother had been alive because she was so mentally unwell, she wouldn't have been a good source of factual information anyway. So my mother, especially toward the end of her life, she was having memory loss problems. So she wouldn't have been a good source anyway. And that might be the case for a lot of memoir people. Like maybe if someone wants to write about their parents who have dementia or something, it it might be very true that you don't have a person to fact check you, even the person you're writing about. And so in my mom's case, it was because of her schizoid affective disorder. So it, it wouldn't have 
been helpful for me to check with her. But I did check with, there were two people who are still alive who knew her really well in her past. One wasn't, both of them had been romantic interests of her. One, they had been married briefly and another, they had just been together for a really long time when I was a child. And so I did ask them a lot of questions and I uncovered some pretty shocking secrets about my family. And I trust that there is perception because they did give me information I didn't have, but a way around keeping the integrity of your story, even if you don't have necessarily all the quote facts, is focusing on your experience. So the story is the investigation of my mother's murder, but it's more about what it was like for me growing up with a mentally ill mother who was struggling with drug addiction. And she was diagnosed with manic depression when I was young. Manic depression, now we call it bipolar, but back then it was manic depression. And so she would have these episodes and I didn't really understand why she was so sick and what was happening with her and why she would have these complete personality and emotional shifts, like in the blink of an eye. And so by focusing just on what that was like for me in those moments, I'm still being very honest. Like there's nothing untrue about what I was like, I was talking about these experiences in each moment, but maybe I didn't have the fact of like why she was so ill necessarily. I do feel that I uncovered that now by interviewing the people that knew her in the past. I found some source information, some, I call it the detonation event, the reason why I think that she was so mentally un- unwell. And I was able to get that by investigating people that knew her, but just by sticking more closely to my experience, I think you're able to remain true and honest, even if you don't have that person, because it's very possible, especially if you were an older person, maybe, and a lot of people have died or the person you're writing about has dementia. Maybe you don't have that to check with. I think if you just stick to your experience, you can still tell a very honest story. That's very Mm. truthful. Yeah, no, I I agree with you. I know that's something difficult. Although to be honest, I can't remember so much about my own life, let alone, (laughs) let alone anyone else's. (laughs) But um, I guess we could say that's a good thing about trauma is that it blazes your experiences onto the retina of your mind. (laughs) Like I retained everything. No, I have kept a lot of journals and stuff. So it it had helped, but you've talked about how you write journals and you go back and you're like, I don't know her. Exactly. And Um, that that's fascinating. I think I find that fascinating that we can read something that we wrote and we don't feel we are that person anymore. And I think that's what gives me pause in terms mm -hmm. of trying to think about what another person would have felt or considered when that person is different as well now. And that's, I think this is why memoir is so hard because history is always an ever moving river and things change and people change and we have to write about different points in time. And as you say, you have a sort of A story, which is the investigation. And then your B story is your experiences in the past and your mother's history and things like that. So I, I think it's deceptively difficult genre to write but I I want to get into the podcast aspect you mentioned that you wrote this as a podcast first so why write it like that and then why change the format as well into a book why did you do it this way another good question so I had 
I had talked about and explored trauma adjacently in all of my novels. For example, in my Shadows in the Water series, the main character, Lou Thorne, she's a sort of vigilante type character who hunts down and kills this mafia family because they had killed her father, who was a DEA agent. And so she has this trauma, traumatic moment that keeps coming back up. If you've ever read, um, oh gosh, Donald Mass did writing the breakout novel. Did you ever mm-hmm. do that? It comes with a workbook. I know you like workbooks. <laughs> yes. Um, but he talks yes. about high points. And so her one of her high points that she revisits, a moment that's blasted into her mind, is where she's on the, the back patio talking to her father. He wants to get her some help because she has this ability to travel by water and shadows, but she's terrified of it because she can't control it, right? So the water and the the darkness sort of just swallow her up at random and it's terrifying for her. And so he's telling her this and he's trying to comfort her that she'll be okay. And then these bad guys show up, bust into the house. Um, You see the light go off in the bedroom. No, the mom's been shot. And then here's the guy pointing the gun at her dad and he picks her up and throws her into the pool, knowing that it would save her. And so that's her traumatic experience, right? And so everything that she does going forward is to process that experience. So I understood kind of intimately from my fiction that this is what happens, like something happens and then you do things to process what happens to you. But I had never talked about my trauma. Like, here is Corey, and this is what happened to her. I was always like, this is what happened to somebody else. (laughs) Like, it's not me. It was always me. But it was like, it's not me. It's someone else, right? And with the podcast, I felt like, okay, if it's really going to be me, then I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it with my voice. It was almost a commitment to fully step into the light to do this. I was like, okay, I'm going to tell the story with my own voice. You're going to hear my voice say what happened Everything that happened to me happened to my mother, happened to my family. It isn't fiction. It isn't fantasy. And so I think that the element of using my voice is really important. And the, the opposite of that being it's it's fiction, it's written down, it's about someone else. So it just it felt like a very strong shift to stepping into this position of I'm really going to tell my story and I'm going to tell it like this so that you can hear me as if it would be like telling a friend almost like, I'm going to tell you this thing that happened to me. I'm going to share it with you. And I think it added to the intimacy and the honesty of the story by telling it with my own voice. Yes. And true crime podcasts are one of the most popular genres of podcasts. And so, and it seems totally horrible to ask you about marketing, but at the end of the day, you, <laughs> okay. you have got... No, you know, got... I really can separate them in my brain. Don't feel bad. <laughs> like, I really am Corey with the, the Corey with the publishing hat, Corey with the writing hat, Corey, like I can do it all. So you absolutely ask me whatever you want. I'll just put the yeah. other Corey away. <laughs> well, so how has having a podcast of the book, has that helped the book sell have you done an audiobook version as well because obviously there's different platforms for these things and how has the marketing gone for for it yeah it's interesting because the book hasn't come out well actually I think when this interview goes out it will have just published right and so I I can't say that I've seen anything happen with book sales because the the book doesn't exist in physical form yet but I did want to release a book because not everyone who listens to podcasts read books you know some people I have a friend for example she has no physical time between her 
nursing school and her two kids and her life to like sit down and read a physical book, but she loves stories. So she does podcasts and audiobooks. So I'm thinking of someone like her for the audio only stuff. And then there are people who they can't imagine listening to stuff. They want to hold a book. So I have a book for them. And so that's why I have all the different formats. But as for marketing them, I really does. I really do think it comes down to who you're trying to reach. I have seen the people who listen to my podcast go and buy my fiction because the fiction does exist at present. And so they read that and they're like, oh, this is a really interesting mystery. I like Corey's style. I like how she unfolds it. It's very cliffhangery. It pulls me right through. I blasted through it. And then they pick up Shadows in the Water, for example, that also has these crime elements. And they're like, oh yeah, I can see the same style. I really enjoyed that. And so it there is some crossover between the memoir and my fiction, which I did not expect at all, because just getting your readers to go from one genre to another or one series to another is really hard. You know, for example, I just published three sci-fi books and not everyone's jumping ship from shadows to the city books, which are set 500 years in the future in a post-climate change world. But it's also a mystery. It's a it's a police procedural, essentially, with these two characters. So it's, it's very interesting, the, the hangups that people get about trying different things. <laughs> I don't know. I guess I understand it though also because you only have so many hours in the day, right? Like it's like you need to be very choosy about mm. the the entertainment that you that you, that you serve on. But I do find that another marketing tip is that I created a newsletter sequence for the podcast people. So for example, I had a few extra things that I had shared on my Patreon, some like side audio stories that were adjacent to my the ones that I had put on the podcast about my mom's story. And so I put those in a newsletter sequence. So when people sign up, when people listen to the podcast, they get the pitch to sign up for my newsletter. And they did do that. And they were interested in that. I'm also putting the autopsy report on there, which sounds macabre, but some people like, <laughs> they like the mystery aspect. So they want to see, like, they're like, yes, give me the files, <laughs> give me the files, give me the family photos. I want all the details. And so I put that up there in case they they want to see it, they want more of the information. And so I did get newsletter signups that way as well, because it was an audio offering. So they were listening to audio and what they get is audio, like their freebies, which I think was a good choice, as opposed to sometimes when we offer audio, but we're like, okay, here's a book, but maybe they don't have time to read a book. You know, maybe that's the reason why they chose a podcast to listen to, for example while they're Mm. washing the dishes or the car or whatever they've got to do with their life. So So. you, I I guess the the question I have here is, so you did the podcast first, then you uh, took obviously the transcript or the the words from the podcast that you'd obviously read out. So they were written down anyway. You, Mm -hmm. did you edit that again? And then are you going to turn that into an audio book as a product? I mean, the main difference obviously is a podcast is free and Mm -hmm. the audio book you can sell and also people listen on different platforms. So you're going to get discoverability on audible audio book, platforms that you get a different discoverability on podcasts so are you and how will those two products differ I guess well I was on the fence about it and you just made a really good pitch for why I should put it out not, so thank you for making that decision for me no oh, good um, I had been, <laughs> thank, thank you so much no but I had been thinking about the things that that you just mentioned you're right they are different platforms someone who is on audible for example aren't necessarily listening to apple podcasts or there's not necessarily any overlap in those markets and 
I have thought about what I would do differently. I would need to re-record it because the podcast files that I uploaded, they have all the music and stuff put on that because I made my own music for the show using this steel tongue drum that my wife had given me for as an anniversary gift. So it's got this really haunting, beautiful sound. It's interesting, but I don't know that it would work in an audiobook because they have the silence between the chapters and you got to upload it and Audible has to approve it. And maybe they'd be like, what is this weird? What is this weird music here in the beginning of each chapter? So I would need to redo it. And yes, I did edit it. The whole process was I wrote the episode. I got in the booth with the episode, realized I couldn't say something while I was recording the episode, rewrote the sentence, and then said it again. That was happening. So there's also edits that were happening as I was recording each episode. And then I edited it again, gave it to my editor, and he edited it for me again. And then it went to the proofers. So it is slightly different than it would been it would have been as a podcast. And I believe audiobooks, they need to match pretty closely, right? Like you can only have a differentiation of that's only on Amazon and um for WhisperSync, but I personally yes, I don't even bother about that anymore. I just I just do <laughs> what like, I do. Who cares? <laughs> <laughs> we have better things to do with our life. Yes. So I mean I would need to do that, but I think I would have to re-record it if I wanted to do it. But I do like the idea of having it free, like having the audio aspect free. And maybe that would also have some visibility because you can go to my website and it's set up as a player you know like you can just play through the episodes so you don't necessarily have to be on podcasts for example to there are some Mm. people who don't even know how to get onto a podcast app I've run into that where they're like I do want to listen to your show but what what do I do like do I just and it was surprising to me that a lot of people still don't know Mm. what they are and and how to use them so for someone like that the player would be useful yeah, I, I, this is definitely something I think about. For example, I have some short stories which are on YouTube audio for free and you can get from my pay hip for free. I also sell them on the various audio apps. And I think, you know, we do this for eBooks. We give away eBooks for free as a sign up, and we also sell them. And so I, I don't think there's anything wrong in having the same material f- available for free as a podcast, but also for sale on the audio apps and as a a book and and all of those things I think people we, we need to put things out there for people in the way that they want to consume them and not just assume that they'd rather have it for free I guess that's true that's absolutely true I was thinking at first not having something behind a pay wall was making it more accessible but you're right there might be a reason another accessibility reason why someone needs it in a certain format that I'm not thinking of so good point. Yeah, or even even just on the platform. So I, I buy uh, audiobooks direct from authors, but I also have the Audible app, and it recommends things in the same way that Amazon always does. And so if it recommends something, then I'll put it on my wish list. I might uh, and discover it that way. I think that's what I'm trying to say is that there are lots of ways that people will discover audio that might not be how you do it. So yeah, I, I yes. do, and I guess it's good we've had this discussion because I have also thought about this. I haven't even written my memoir yet and I'm thinking about <laughs> this too. <laughs> you should absolutely write your memoir. Is it the travel memoir that you've mentioned? Yes, it's going to happen. It's, it's totally going to happen. <laughs> well, it's okay. Just get in there, feel your feelings, be accepting and curious, and I'm sure we will be super excited to read it. Right. Well, we could talk about this forever, but we are out of time. So where can people find you and your books online? 
Sure. So the easiest way to find me and all that I do, you could just go to whokilledmymother.com. And that has links to the different kind of books and series that I write. So everything's on there. And then also, or you could pick up Shadows in the Water or Dying for a Living because they're both free at the moment. So enjoy. (laughs) Right. Well, thank you so much for your time, Corey. That was great. Thank you so much for having me. I hope you found the interview with Corrie thought-provoking and when we go through these incredibly difficult times as we all must in our lives it's good to know that writing can be there for us and you don't need to publish your words unless of course you choose to Uh, as Corrie did it was you know testimony for her mum really Uh, but writing is such a great mental health tool I've certainly found it very important in the last 18 months of the pandemic it has kept me sane so coming up later this week I have an in-between episode about business models around NFTs and I am well down the blockchain rabbit hole at this point I've been binge listening to tons of podcast episodes from very varied people you know some real gung-ho crypto heads and then people who are starting to move into this space in a create like a very creative fashion it's not about finance it's about blockchain blockchain opportunities and smart contracts and resale and digital assets and all that. It was super, super interesting. Uh, so I'm starting to play with some things and put together what I want to do. So expect excitement to come. Uh, and then next Monday, I'm talking about writing and podcasting poetry with Mark McGuinness who is the host of the 21st Century Creative Podcast and also has a new show, A Mouthful of Air, all about poetry. And we discuss the balance of art and commerce, amongst other things. So happy writing, and I'll see you next time. Thanks for listening today. I hope you found it helpful. You might also like the backlist episodes and show notes, available at thecreativepen.com forward slash podcast. You can also get your free author blueprint at thecreativepen.com forward slash blueprint. If you'd like to connect, you can tweet me at The Creative Pen or find me on Facebook at The Creative Pen. See you next time.